0: And last week we heard after rejecting nine years ago, the New Zealand government's offer to resettle refugees. Australia has been holding in offshore detention centres. The federal government will now accept this offer after all. Uh, New Zealand has announced it will take in 450 asylum seekers and refugees held in Australia or in offshore detention in Nauru. And many of these refugees have been detained for years without hope of resettling here. And to speak more about this. Uh, David Mann joins us from Refugee Legal. And uh, David, welcome. Good morning. Um, Thanks for being there. Good morning.
1: Yeah, good to be with
0: you. And um, I mean, look, there's still uh, some information still to become available about this deal, but it looks like 150 people a year will be resettled in New Zealand. Uh, And uh, maybe you can let us know who will be eligible for this pathway to resettlement. Um, Yeah, it'd it'd be great to get a little bit more information if you have it
1: yeah look just a bit of backdrop too. you know um, this has taken nine years for Australia to agree. I mean it's in extraordinary, 2013, really nine
0: years. Yep. Two
1: thousand and thirteen, the, the New Zealand government uh, uh, initially said we'll take we'll resettle uh, from offshore offshore detention in Nauru or in Manus. Uh We'll resettle one hundred and fifty uh, people per year. Um, just do the figures on that i mean if that, if that many people had been resettled in the last nine years, there wouldn't be anyone uh, needing resettlement but um, it's taken nine years uh, and uh, and and finally, there has been a deal struck it's for three yeah, one hundred and fifty people per year over three years as you say and there's a lot of detail to be um, to, to be sorted out uh, there's a lot that we still don 't know uh, in relation to critical detail one um, aspect of it that um, it still needs to be uh, fully understood and that is eligibility as you as you ask and um one of the one of the issues at the moment is that we think uh, is going to be uh, contentious is the question about uh, whether anyone who is currently seeking resettlement, for example, in the US or in Canada, uh, that is, they're engaged in some kind of resettlement process, as they call it, whether they'll be eligible at all uh, for the New Zealand offer. There are different, um, there, there are conflicting, there's conflicting information on that at the moment, uh, and it's really critical that, that be sorted out. I mean, um, the people who've been through this, um, this terrible, terrible uh, ordeal um, deserve to know more about that. Uh, but uh, as it stands, I guess in terms of this deal, one one key issue always... I think, you know, the fundamental question is always initially with these kind of things, as aberrant as it is for another country uh, to be effectively you know, taking on Australia's responsibilities to people who've suffered so much, if it, if it um, is able to alleviate the suffering of people, then, um, of course, it's important progress. But it is over three years uh, and uh, there are a lot of questions that we still need to know about eligibility.
0: I mean, has there been an explanation provided for why the federal government has taken nine years to accept this offer? Has there been anything (laughs) offered about that?
1: Well, the government has taken this position that for for over all of those years, this sort of no chance policy, if you like, the the policy that anyone that sought asylum in Australia by boat will never be allowed to resettle in Australia. So that's that continues to be the policy, uh, and. One aspect of that policy, that hardline policy, has been to affect effectively for anyone that, um, that came by boat uh, who was sent to Nauru or to PNG. Uh, that remains the policy that they will never be allowed to resettle in Australia. And as part of that, uh, there's been this, um, this this constant claim by the government uh, that uh, that people that they, that. They can't open up the New Zealand option because somehow um, that would uh, result in effectively um, you know what they what the the rhetoric around it is that that would be marketed and pitched to people smugglers, in other words, it would um somehow. Um, weaken border protection and see the resumption of boats, literally. I mean, this this has been the position of the Australian government that to allow people to be resettled in New Zealand uh, to alleviate their suffering in that way um, would somehow um, risk uh, the resumption of boats uh, in Australia, despite the fact, for example, that that in recent years more than a 1,000 people have been resettled to the US, no boats. Despite the fact that well over a thousand people, in fact, you know, uh, you know, 1,400, 1,500 people have been brought to Australia uh, from Nauru and PNG because they, they simply couldn't. Uh, be cared for there, you know, they become, you know, they were critically ill and needed to be brought to Australia, Medivac to Australia, no boats, etc. you know, despite the fact that some people have been resettled to small amounts of people to other places in, you know, European countries, no boats, but the government has continued to maintain that position and now all of a sudden uh, a backflip, I guess, a reversal of that position.
0: And, I mean, what was the role, um, do we know yet, of Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie in this New Zealand arrangement?
1: Well, her role, really how she became involved was when the government sought to repeal uh, the Medivac laws that, uh, you know, that effectively, uh, those Medivac laws which had resulted, you know, and we've talked about this quite a bit. We we're central in relation to those Medivac laws in terms of uh, ensuring that critically all people who couldn't be cared for offshore could um, could use those laws to be able to be airlifted to Australia to get the treatment they could, they absolutely urgently needed. She was critical in, in um, enabling the government in, in December 2019 to repeal those laws. Uh, that it effectively, they were very unusual laws. They were coercive kinds of laws, uh, which the government, um, you know, effectively uh, was unable to oppose. They so were passed you know, that we, of course, contrary to the government's um, uh, will at the time. Um, and uh, she was critical in the repeal. She did. She did a deal with the government, and that deal remained secret. Uh, but there was plenty of information around at the time that it was likely that it had to do something. It had to somehow deal deal with the New Zealand issue or had something to do with it, she's now come out and said it it was about that, that uh, in agreeing to uh, give the government the vote to enable the repeal of the Medivac laws that she did, uh, did actually do a deal in relation to New Zealand. But I have to say, you know, I mean, um, (laughs) it's, it's a little bit hard to know what to make of all of that because... Um, I, I, I think the, the best position is that the government at some point was always going to go to the New Zealand option. It's just taken this long to do so. I think um, how much Jackie Lambie really had to deal to do with that in the end, I think, is moose. You know, I, I think it's pretty highly speculative at best. Um, but she has sort of said, too, now she's come out and said that she was under um, significant pressure to not reveal... Um what she'd what what she'd um, effectively the, the 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 content of the deal with the government at the at the time. I mean the bottom line is that New Zealand, from the government's point of view, has for some years been um, an option to explore uh, as a resettlement option if they needed to, and now they've gone to that that
0: option. And as you say it's um it's taken nine years to accept the offer, and at one hundred and fifty people per year, we wouldn't have. People in offshore detention centres. I mean, how many people are actually still uh, in the offshore detention regime, Um, David?
1: Yeah. Well, um, Kelly, this is this is key because look, New Zealand now coming on board with um, a couple of hundred places still uh, to be filled in the US um, resettlement. Uh, Canada probably resettling a small amount of refugees in the future. All of these people, by the way, who sought asylum in Australia, sought protection and safety um, from us and then were exiled offshore. the upshot is, um, with all of that resettlement by other countries assuming Australia's responsibilities, which is fundamentally short, um, more than 500, at very best, uh, the, est- the estimate is that more than 500 people will still remain stranded. Um, when all of that, all of that resettlement um, has been completed, um, and you know, so just to give you a sense about why that is, there are still 216 people offshore. There's 112 people in Nauru, and the remain the remainder are in. There's just over 100 people in PNG. Um, over and above that, in Australia, people that were sent offshore and have been brought back for the reasons I mentioned. Um, there are there there are um, 1,150 people thereabouts in Australia. So overall there's 1,400 people are, you know, thereabouts. And the, the bottom line is there is no way that all of those people, not even close, um, will, will all of those people be able to get resettlement through the current arrangements. There are 51 people in Australia still uh, in indefinite detention including some of the park hotel. There's, and the remaining 1,100 people have been left in cruel limbo in the Australian community for years and still remain in the Australian own community so basically uh, the upshot is that the very best you know over 500 people will remain in this uh, ongoing and terribly destructive crushing limbo
0: as that um, that lands for for people listening I'll remind um, everyone who you are David Mann uh, refugee legal speaking with me Carly, you're on the grapevine this morning and I mean look that that's you know that is is really Confronting, and I think you know we're heading towards a, a federal government uh, election. Uh, whoever the new federal government is, uh, what should their focus be in this in this regard, uh, David? Well, well,
1: well, the critical issue is to outline plans and then get on get, 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 get cracking on on implementing plans to ensure the enduring safety and and the future freedom of um, of everyone caught up in this in this, uh, you know devastating, you know, limbo uh, to resolve their plants and, and, you know, it's been almost a decade now. Um, I mean, even the idea that, you know, it's going to take three years with the New Zealand deal. Sure, it's progress in the sense that it will inevitably lead to safety and freedom for some people. But I think the critical issue is to urgently resolve the situation for everyone who, after a decade, almost a decade of this crushing limbo, have suffered so severely and it's taken this devastating toll and it needs to be resolved. And um, I I I am concerned, um, as important a step as this is, in providing some options to some people um, for safety in the future. I'm concerned... Uh, about um, you know even a three-year deal, deal at the moment and what that could do in terms of delay. So I think that there needs to be fresh thinking on this uh, to really resolve um, the whole situation um, far more quickly. I think um, a future government um, should, um, should should seriously engage in the fact that Australia retains moral and legal and practical responsibility for the plight of everyone who has not yet been resettled, and to, um, to have a, 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 a fundamental rethink of that, what that means, you know, what the obligation means, and uh, and to look at actually allowing people to stay in Australia who've been here now, many of them, for you know, for years, to be able to rebuild their lives and have a future um, with a home and freedom and belonging.
0: And, I mean, look, just to, to go... Um look in, internationally I mean the refugee crisis around the world is 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 there um we're seeing it at the moment with regards to millions of people displaced in Europe due to the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and uh I mean can you speak just I don't know I've kept you over time David but just like briefly about that like your networks around the world you know how, how catastrophic is what's happening right now
1: oh it, it works well, absolutely devastating again it's it's a it's a it's a it, it's a devastating crisis and um, and you know, we're, we're seeing this um, I mean it's unfolding you know, like Afghanistan and other crises it's unfolding um, you know, far away in one sense but it's so present in another sense in terms of reverberates deeply across the world, not only in Europe but across the world uh, including in Australia and including in Melbourne. I mean there are many people we're getting constant calls from people um, in desperate need, Ukrainians and, and people, friends and family um, in desperate need of help um, as, you know, the, the situation escalates and, and you know, the, 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 the cruelty and the danger and that the brutality unfolds. And, you know, I, I think that the, the overarching um, approach at the moment uh, has been one of uh, sort of safe haven of provi- ensuring that um, people... Um, um, engulfed in the crisis um, uh, are, are able to access safe haven, whether it be in neighbouring countries like Poland uh, or um, or elsewhere in, in other neighbouring countries in Europe, or in some respects, um, in some cases, being able to get out of uh, Ukraine and come to Australia. Uh, so Australia's granted over 4,000 visas to Ukrainians, and I think that that will increase. And they've also created, um, I think almost 1,000 people have actually been able to get here already on those visas. There are many that are still trying to get here. But Australia, the Australian government has also created a special, uh, amongst other things, a special visa, or sorry, suggested that a visa that exists, this is a three-year temporary visa, temporary protection kind of visa or safe haven visa, that that will become available for Ukrainians too. Um, so there's a lot There's a lot of um, measures being taken. Um, but I think that, um, you know, what, what a lot of this, I think, highlights too with the Afghanistan crisis... The Ukrainian crisis, and there are many others globally at the moment, is that um, Australia's response, it is so absolutely critical that Australia's response um, shift from shirking responsibilities to actually assuming responsibilities and taking some kind of global leadership on these matters. I mean, the amount of resources, the amount of suffering uh, by with Australia taking such an aberrant and um, you know, aberrant and frankly illegal approach in terms of its you know, flouting its responsibilities um, when it comes to people offshore really highlights, you know, the problems, the fault lines in policy in this country, and the need to actually take, um, you know, global leadership um, as a country that should be one of the um, one of those with you know, immense uh, resources and ability to actually um, you know, make a difference in people's lives.
0: David, it's always great to have you on Triple R. Thank you so much and um, all the best with your work and, and um, to your clients and, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful that you can find time to speak with us on Triple R. Thank you.
2: Triple R on FM, digital, online
0: and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And it hasn't been a stellar decade for evidence-based spending on transport infrastructure like roads and public transport, car parks and the like. And that's to put it politely. Uh, This isn't just because of health spending due to the pandemic, but really um, because of the irresistible temptation to politicised, localised infrastructure spending in this country. And the Grattan Institute is calling this out. And in a recent report uh, focused on transport infrastructure, um, Marion Tyrrell um, is going to Join us and speak about um, the Roundabouts, Overpasses and Car Parks report that she's author of. And, um, yeah, she's um, here to speak about how we can haul the federal government back to its role in transport projects. And Marianne, our guest and on the phone, and uh, thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you very much. Great to be with you.
0: And, uh, I mean, when looking at major transport spending for this report, how politicised did you find transport Spending decisions were, Marion?
3: Well, um, we found, I, I guess we looked at it a couple of different ways. So, one way is we just looked in aggregate at how much money went to different states. And the pattern of spending at that broad level is that. Consistently over three terms of coalition government and two terms of Labor before that, so both colours of government, Um, there's a consistent pattern of sending more transport dollars to Queensland and also to New South Wales, but very obviously to Queensland and less to Victoria. And of course, Queensland and New South Wales are the states where federal elections tend to be won and lost and often Victoria has not been that electorally important at the federal level. But we also looked at small local projects, and the thing about transport is, um, because often the the bigger projects uh, go across multiple electorates, so you can't really analyse them at the electorate level, but you can look at small projects at the electorate level, and what we found here is, um, sad to say, uh, (laughs) quite a, a strong pattern. So... When when, uh, funding programs have got objective criteria and they allocate money essentially by a formula, it's all pretty even-handed, and Labor and coalition governments pretty much look the same. But if you look at it from the perspective of the the funding programs that don't have um, published criteria, and the Urban Congestion Fund is a standout example of this, what you see is a very politicised pattern of spending. So we found there's a big fund. It's $4.9 billion. The commuter car parks are, are a small part of that, but it's a, it's actually a big fund. And we found that the typical marginal seat got $83 million. Safe coalition seats, on average, got $64 million, and Safe Labor got $34 So a very stark pattern of... Um, Sending money to marginal seats first and foremost, and secondly rewarding the base.
0: I mean, we're in a pre-election period now, and we hear a lot of promises um, from politicians. And you also had a look at the 2019 campaign and found many projects that were announced were also poorly thought through, um, and very few were scrutinised by Infrastructure Australia. I mean, can you speak us through that? What you found there as well? Yeah, look, it's really – so just by way of of background, Labor set up Infrastructure
3: Australia when it was last in office, and then it was substantially overhauled by the coalition uh, six or seven years ago. So both major parties have committed to the role of the independent infrastructure advisory body. But when you look – we looked at the 2019 election and before that the 2016 election, and we found – almost none of the projects that the parties were promising had been through the Infrastructure Australia process. So, you know, for for example, um, in 2019, I think it was just uh, one of 71 of the coalition's projects had been valued at 100 million or more, had an approved business case. And for Labor, only two out of 61 So, um, you know, they sort of pay lip service to the importance of Infrastructure Australia, but then when push comes to shove, just ignore it.
0: So, I mean, we have a federation, and is there an issue in that, Marion, like that, you know, what role federal and state governments should play when it comes to transport spending? Because transport spending is expensive, which is why it's such an interesting area to have a look at. But how is that relationship working? Could it be that... I don't know. Queensland's just so much better at um, negotiating for these things, or, or what's you know how is that relationship working?
3: Well, there's an agreement between the federal and the state governments um, for for federal financial relations and for for those areas like transport, it's not the only one, but where there's where both levels of government are involved. And um, the short version of this is that the federal government does nationally significant stuff. So that's where things, uh, a, a transport project is important, not just to the place that it's in, but also more broadly to other states or where it's important for the national economy, that kind of thing. And so and there is a national land transport network. But even though we've got all that um, a sort of background, what actually happens is that the federal government doesn't restrict its role to nationally significant stuff. A lot of what it funds is... Small and hyper local, and the commuter car parks are an example of that. The, the federal government's really got no business in funding commuter car parks because none of them are nationally significant. And, and when it has done that, it's come unstuck in various ways because um, you know there, there's no site or design options that are feasible, or the, the locals are up in arms. It hasn't gone through a proper process. So really, what I'd like to see is the the federal government uh, remember what its role is, which is nationally significant infrastructure, and focus on that and leave locally important stuff to the state and local governments.
0: Seems reasonable. Um, Marion Terrell is Transport and Cities Program Director at the Grattan Institute and author of the Roundabouts, Overpasses and Car Parks report, um, hauling the federal government back to its proper role in transport projects. And that's where you see the federal government's role being. I mean, I guess if things were working, Marion... Um, you know, we'd be, this would be a good news story that focusing on marginal seats, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, that's how we um, spend money on transport in in the public interest. But I mean, what has the result been from the past decade or so that you've had a look at? Have we ended up with the kind of infrastructure that our cities and, and towns need?
3: Well, the only way to really answer that question it, like it's it's difficult to, to know, but I guess um, the way that we decide whether one project or another is worth building and which is the better use of finite money is um, to build a business case. And so there, there isn't really a top-down way of, of doing it. Um, it so but often the the process of of preparing a business case for a major project is bypassed or and it's not done at all or sometimes it is done but it's done after the decision to invest has already been made and that's the wrong way around because the the whole point of the business case is that it helps you to decide helps decision makers to make the decision to invest on an informed basis, so uh, you know we do, we will see more of this. I think in the election campaign of saying yes, we're going to do this, but yes, we're also going to do a business case, and really, you know, you know, you can't do it that way, or if you do it that way, the business case um, is really. Trying to confirm a decision that you've already made, and that's, um, it you know, it's not a, it's not a careful or responsible way to spend public money.
0: I mean, when I saw the one of the charts in your report, having a look at the, you know, where marginal seats are, just really receiving more than then double that of a of a safe Labor seat, for example, it really did fit the narrative of what's um, you know people are saying about the way that we allocate funds particularly around infrastructure and the like I mean how you know I suppose how, how low have we have we got here Marion and and do you see some hope that we can sort of reconstruct not only the the important role of, of an agency like infrastructure Australia but also you know public scrutiny of say election promises
3: yeah I feel like um, it, when there are parliamentary debates about this, um, both parties um, have plenty of sort of uh, make plenty of good statements about what they're committed to. But um, and I think in a lot of ways, setting up Infrastructure Australia was a, a great thing because it was really governments saying we we want to do this better. <laughs> so I, I suppose I, what I therefore conclude is that we, well. Um, What we really need is some tighter guardrails around how this is done. So I'd like to see the the law governing how the federal government um, does spend transport money tightened up in two ways, partly the process and partly what type of projects are funded. So I'd like it to just fund uh, projects that are on the National Land Transport Network. But in terms of the process, I I guess I, I just see no reason why ministers should be able to commit public money before they've considered the business case. And that doesn't mean that they can't then go ahead and make a decision that they're elected to make, um, but they should do it carefully and, and sort of responsibly. So find out about the merits of the different options, find out kind of what is at stake, and and then armed with that information, make a better decision.
0: And I think people f- would be forgiven for thinking that that's how it might work at the moment, but there's certainly the mechanisms are, are there for that, aren't they? And, I mean, with regards to what we might hear tomorrow night and, I suppose, over the coming months, uh, you, you know, how, how should be people be, be scrutinising the kinds of announcements they might hear, especially if they're in a marginal electorate?
3: Yeah, I, I guess we're starting to see um, a reasonable amount of information um, sort of dropped ahead of tomorrow night's budget. And, for example, we know that... Uh, New South Wales and Victoria are up for $3.3 billion each and Queensland up for $3.9 billion. And I think, well, you know, Queensland is the third biggest state, but it's getting more transport money again. So is it more of this persistent pattern. Um, I think it'll be interesting to look at, uh, at how much of the... Of what is promised is focused on those nationally significant big ticket items and how much of it goes to things like commuter car parks and we are hearing that there's a bit of that going to be happening in New South Wales and Queensland as well. So uh, I suppose that, that that's some of the way to look at it. I guess one other thing I would mention though is that um, the, the con- engineering construction sector is already pretty overheated and there's a lot of talk about you can't get labour and you can't get materials because there's just so much work underway and so the government the federal government is upping its commitment to build even more and and when you push even more work into an overheated market I'm afraid what that does is it just pushes up prices so I think expect to see the cost of construction go up.
0: Marianne thanks for keeping an eye on these things for us and um, great to have you on Triple R. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Marion Terrell, their Transport and Cities uh, Program Director over at the Grattan Institute, and uh, you can find the report we we're referring to on their website.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: You're with Kalia and the Grapevine. And I recently had the chance to attend the Social Good Summit in Sydney, which is amazing to be able to travel anywhere. But I was actually just stunned by a whole bunch of inspiring stories and speakers. And one who absolutely stood out was Manal Asharif. sharif um, Manal describes herself as a computer science scientist by education, a cyber security specialist by profession and an activist by accident. She led the Women to Drive movement in 20- to change Saudi Arabia's ban on female drivers. And Manal now lives in Australia and has teamed up with educator and tech consumer Reinhard Sozen to create the Tech for Evil Evil podcast designed to support people to make educated choices and practice their digital rights, among other things, entertaining as well. Um, They focus in on tech we use every day, highlighting how dictators are using these same tools to control. Uh, Manal is my guest this morning um, via Zoom and um, to talk about digital rights in Australia and how our rights here compare um, globally. Manal, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, really, it's really great to have you here. And uh, as I said, I was so impressed by your presentation at that summit, but I know you speak widely and publicly a lot, and you actually have become a really important voice um, highlighting how, you know, social media, communication apps, and others are used for surveillance and control. How receptive do you find people are when you provide them with really what is confronting information um, about their privacy online?
2: So all of us
0: know at the
2: back of our head that this is happening. We've been monitored, our data been mined. Uh, We all know that. And those apps are highly addictive by design. But unfortunately, we've been desensitized by tech companies because at the end of the day, their products won't sell if people resist it. So it starts with desensitizing us about what our privacy rights what could uh, be acceptable and couldn't be acceptable. And it's just a process. And it's like, you just look at it as drips of water. With years and years and years of desynthesizing us, asking us to share more, like more, engage more, we're just hooked. We're all hooked. So when you talk to people, they tell you, yes, I know, but I'm enjoying it. I'm connecting with my friends. And that's the, the, that's the, the concern. The concern is... Tech companies use something that we want, which is we want a connection, we want uh, convenience, and they deploy, use that to help them get what they want without our permission, without our consent, or at least informed consent. So unfortunately, we're still in the stage of we know about it, but we really don't care.
0: Yeah, and I, was, I mean, I was going to sort of say, you know, but deep down how knowledgeable are we really about our digital rights i mean that that sort of denial state look i'm sure you know i'm in it we're, we're 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 in it but is it because we're not quite engaging or because really we just you know what do we what do we do
2: so technology is really advancing way faster than cultures than regulations than our comp- like we can't comprehend uh, technology is overwhelming for us We all, if our life is digitized today, but without digital rights. And when it was digitized, we had a little say in that because we couldn't understand. It's everyone just wanted to use the tool. You want to have your laptop. You want to have your smartphone and get from A to B if you want to use your uh, GPS system. But we didn't really, we were not part of making the rules. And that's why for us today, the more we are, Dependent in technology, uh, the more we just don't have time to deal with understanding what is a digital right. Where are my privacy rights? The government too is not is not keeping up with the advancement in technology, and unfortunately, and I, we talk about this in our podcast. The Australian government is actually helping big tech and tech companies uh, by leaving Australians. Uh, wide open to abuses of their privacy rights and data mining by whether companies in Australia or companies from overseas. So there are very few regulations that protect your digital footprint when you go there online. There are very few, like the Privacy Act, the Australian Privacy Act that was passed in 1988. It was updated, but the problem is it says your personal data are things like your name, email, address, phone number. And that doesn't cover your personal data in the digital world. And that's your IP address. That's your digital address. It doesn't cover your device ID. Every device you have, every mobile phone, uh, a laptop you have, it comes with a unique device ID. That is your name in the digital world. And when they collect such data, they say, we de-identify your data before we sell it or move it to third parties. But it's easily, by removing your name and address, but they give them my IP and they give them my device ID. So that's that's giving them my name because it's easily easily de-identified. So they, um, what's the word? They anonymize it. It can be easily de-anonymized. And that's the problem that we're facing today with um, the regulators in Australia and um, in a lot of parts of the world where they are way behind big tech. I think the European Union are doing a very good job when it comes to protecting the data, the personal data and the digital rights of their citizens. And I always say that should be a global, like a countries that wants to protect the civil liberties and the freedom of the press and the privacy, digital rights of their citizens should adopt a similar regulation and is there. The GDPR could be used as a framework here in Australia.
0: And, I mean, and on a recent Tech for Evil podcast, you spoke to an expert on, on digital rights and um, did comparisons to regimes around the world and Europe really did come across as, as leading in this space. Where is Australia positioned when it comes to, to this area? I mean, you've already highlighted that, you know, big tech and, and tech in general is ahead of the culture and ahead of our, our legal structures, but how, is, that, is that also around the world that um, societies are on the back foot or, or is Europe and others um, finding ways to, to, you know, break even or at least be a bit closer to, to where the innovation is? I think
2: Australia is way behind. And it really concerns me. First of all, when there are big decisions made uh, on the privacy rights, human rights, and digital rights of citizens, they're not informed. I'll give an example, and I wrote about it. I wrote for Michael West Media, and I wrote a whole article about the recent Identify and Disrupt Act. It was passed in 24 hours, in August, amidst a lockdown, a countrywide lockdown. Not a single media talked about it. And it's, it was really concerning because it allows the government to take over any account you have, any online account you have, whether social media, whether any account. It gives the, com- the government, the, it gives AFP and um, it gives them the access to your account. So they go and talk to the company that runs your account. And if they refuse, they could face 10 years in jail. They have access to your account. They can read All the things in your private messages, they can delete things, they can edit, and they can even shut it down if they want, and you will be the last to know that the government have access to your account. And that really was disturbing. And they had to amend Human Rights and Privacy Acts. When a new piece of legislation comes and it starts amending pieces of legislation like what defines your privacy rights, what defines your human rights, it's really concerning. And the people were not informed. People were so busy with the, with the COVID lockdowns and the new wave. That is my concern. The other thing, since September 11, um, the Australian government passed over 92 pieces of laws that anti, they call it anti-terrorism laws. But these anti-terrorism laws that are counter, um, they are really weakening what is considered civil liberty, what is considered um, freedom of press. So uh, the, if you read the github.org.au, uh, they just published last year um, Democracy Say, and they mentioned that the collective of these laws resulted in 5,000 pages of, of, of rules and offenses. This is like from zero anti-terrorism laws to 92 laws, 5,000 pages. So it tells in the last 20 years, the September 11th was taken as um, opportunity to weaken privacy rights. And it's funny, most governments think, oh, when we do this, we're actually protecting the country. You're actually not protecting the country. You are making it um, easy for other governments to spy on your citizens because they can collect the data. They can use the same tools you're using to protect your country. And the second thing, you're, you're not allowing freedom of press, because journalists who want to investigate, who have sources, they can't guarantee their safety and and they can't guarantee confidentiality of that uh, conversation. So now you you have, there is an attack on freedom of the press. And any democracy, when it starts attacking two things, any democracy you get concerned, two things when it starts attacking, freedom of the press and education. And if a democracy, a liberal democracy like Australia start attacking these two, then you have to be really, really concerned.
0: Manal um, Asharif sure is our guest. Uh, and uh, Manal, I mean, perhaps for those that don't um, know the depth of your work in this space and also really, I mean, it was just enormous what you achieved as um, as you so-called an a- 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 activist by accident, um, but leading the, the Women to Drive movement in Saudi Arabia. Can you speak about your relationship with technology and what you've experienced in, in this space that you, you were just highlighting there around access to, to your data, the ability to, to remain private and, and those really fundamental digital rights concerns um, that you're, you know, you're sharing publicly through your podcasts and, and, and speeches, but what's your personal um, experiences?
2: So I come from a, a highly censored country. So the penetration of internet in Saudi Arabia is around 100%. We have high-speed internet, smart government. We do everything online. But there is a price that comes with that. You pay with that is the government have access and, um, and oversee the all-knowing government of what the, the citizens are doing? Where they're spending their money, or where they've been around, who they're talking to. So coming from that uh, highly digitized society and highly surveilled society, um, when we started the movement, the Women to Drive movement, we were inspired by the Arab Spring. We actually at that time used social media, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, effectively to push for change, challenge the ban on women driving, and call for more rights for women in my country. But years later, down the, down the road in 2018, I couldn't tweet because every time I tweet, I was just faced with hundreds of harassment, death threats, rape threats. And when Jamal Khashoggi, um, so I write for the Washington Post, and there was a journalist, a side journalist, also write for the Washington Post. He was assassinated. And I remember the day the CIA mentioned that the Crown Prince is responsible for the assassination. The worldwide trend that day, and I have a screenshot of that, was in support of the crown prince. So I knew that it was taken control of by the government. And I knew whoever had the tool and understand how you can manipulate social media, can push their agenda in unprecedented ways. And I'm a computer scientist. I work in cybersecurity all my life. And just watching how technology held us. Um, I was radical Muslim. The internet came; it opened my mind to the world. Um, I was completely, you um, know, highly discriminated against for being a woman. Social media gave me a voice, and used it effectively, and gave gave it. was our virtual parliament in a country without elected parliament. Unfortunately, that was taken away from us when the government understood how to use these tools. Now, look today at social media; it's an engagement, a driven. Uh, business model. And that means if your post is sensational, if your post is uh, outrageous, angry, uh, fear, that is the post that gets um, emphasized um, and that the post that gets boosted because all they care about social media companies is the engagement of the people. And on the way, they got people highly polarized society. They got all those misinformation and disinformation, and the difference between them is very important for people to know. Disinformation is when someone on purpose go and post wrong wrong information. But misinformation is when people share, like, get angry and talk about things they think is true. And that's my problem with the current business model of social media and big tech The other thing is very important to people to know. If you have Alexa in your house, throw it in the trash. Alexa is a company, it's a data mining company that Amazon bought in 98. And that Alexa, what it does, it just listens to you and it mines all the data. Whether you want to talk to it or not, it's listening. And what it does, it mines this data and use it to build, to first of all, train their AI systems. Second of all, Use it to build an accurate shadow profile about us. And I'm, I'm, so Alexa is just one example. And because there are no regulations that sets the line, set the boundaries for these companies, unfortunately, I mean, we ended up in a symmetric relationship with tech companies. And dictators understood that, and authoritarian regime understood that. And they used that power of technology to push their propaganda in unprecedented way. A good example of how government can use technology effectively to change a whole political system in the Philippines and the journalist Maria Rissa who won the Peace Award Prize last year Nobel Peace Award, uh, Prize last year she had an extensive reporting on the use of Facebook by the Filipino government uh, by the Philippines government on completely changing people <laughs> uh, to vote for whoever they wanted them to vote for we can go on and on. And um, In Australia, for example, in the US, we could get numbers of how much Facebook is been paid by fossil fuel companies to show their ads, showing that they're part of the solution. In Australia, we couldn't get this number. There's no transparency here. We couldn't know how much fossil fuels are being paid Facebook and Google to push their agenda, to, to delay climate crisis action. And that's my concern, and that's what we talked extensively about in our podcast, Tech for Evil.
0: Yeah, and uh, Manal, I mean, the war in Ukraine is also an information war and there have been many reports that in Russia, to gain information, ordinary people are using Telegram mostly, um, other technologies that are encrypted. What, what role do these kinds of platforms play in, can I put in inverted commas, the, the, the free flow of information and, and, uh, and are they secure?
2: Unfortunately, today, there's nothing secure. Once you are online, you can easily be hacked by whoever chooses to hack you. So if you're a journalist, if you're a diplomat, a government official, pretty much know that you are a target. And, um, and, and unfortunately, encrypted and highly private uh, mobile phones or connections are usually expensive. So the free ones that exist Gives you a level of privacy, but it's not everything. And I talked in the speech in social the Social good Summit about the NSO group. They have a tool called Pegasus, and that tool, if they if they target you with that tool, there's no encryption that could work because the tool what it does is sits on your phone as if you are as if they are actually sitting on your phone. So they see all your messages. They look at all your whole screen as if they're sitting behind your back. Um, over your shoulder, looking over your phone screen, and they read everything before it is encrypted and sent online to the other party. So you can, and it's a zero click, and that means if they could give you a missed call on your WhatsApp, they could send you iMessage on your iPhone, and you get hacked. So it's really depressing what's going on with with the technology that you can't be um, protected anymore, and hopefully... More and more advocates talk and bring this. Yeah, but the war today is not on the ground. The war today starts um, is a cyber warfare, and I think Russia and Ukraine. There was a massive campaign, cyber warfare campaign against the Ukrainian uh, websites and services. And the more digitized we are, the more vulnerable we are.
0: Absolutely. That means we- and I mean, what's? It, I mean, uh, we're almost out of time, but I mean, what's coming up? And I, I must say that I've, I've listened to your Tech for Evil podcast, and it is very entertaining um, as you tackle some of the kind of really big um, issues facing us in, in the online world. Um, what, what's, what's coming up soon with regards to your conversations that you um, oh, you have with your yeah, collaborator?
2: Uh, Reinhard, mm-hmm. so we, the new season for this year, we actually talk about dating apps and why it keeps you single and miserable, because a lot <laughs> of people use dating apps. We talk about weapons of mass surveillance uh-huh. that being used by governments. We talk also about the ethics in tech. A lot of technologists don't discuss ethics in tech. Uh, our our uh, first episode of season one, two was about captology, and captology is from the word captive, is how you use computers as persuasive technology to change the way we think and behave. Few people know about these things, and we what we want to do is just change starts with awareness, and that's what we're trying to do through the, web, the podcast. Is really make empower people by the knowledge and the know how to, uh, to take the the digital to take their digital agency back.
0: Thank you so much for being with me this morning, Manal, and um, look, let's get you back. I would also love to to meet uh, Rehard um your collaborator on the the Tech for Evil podcast and associated um, blogs, etc., on the website. if people want to search it out. Um, it's great to have the chance to to speak with you in some depth. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. You too, uh, Manal uh, Sharif. There and uh, Manal, you um, you might have seen her speak. Uh, she really has taken on an important advocacy role in the area of digital rights, and uh, she also led the the women to drive movement uh, to challenge Saudi Arabia's ban on female drivers. An extraordinary um, achievement.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.